Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Operate, a new tech startup investment and company building platform based right here in Southern California. We've got a number of amazing founders already in the Operate family. If you're looking for help with your startup or opportunities to work with the next generation of high growth companies or want to be part of this community, you can go to operatestudio.com to learn more. I'm super excited to have Nick Kromitis with me on the show today. Before we get to hear from him, though, let me tell you a little bit about Nick. He is currently the co-founder and CEO of Hunt Club, a new category of search firm. And so we'll talk about that today for sure. He's about five years in, and he's been through a great entrepreneurial journey already. And so we definitely want to hear about some of those steps along the way. He also is founder of New Coast Ventures, which invests in and co-creates companies. We both have worked closely with so many founders. We often are sharing these founder stories in kind of that early stage, company creation, early building. And so we'll definitely cover some of that today as well. He's been super active in the Chicago startup scene for a number of years. And we recently realized just how many mutual friends we had in common there as well. Uh, he's also a tennis player. I don't think I've told him that I, I uh, purported to be one back in the day. And he also is a coach. And I want to talk uh, specifically about some of that experience because I find that coaching is often a, a, a great skill development around leadership uh, and other elements of life as well. So I want to talk about that. Nick, thanks for joining me. Really excited to have you on the show this morning. Appreciate you having me, Kerry. I was excited to chat in small world with the 10,000 mutual friends across you know, the Midwest and West Coast and excited to, to, to be here. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I gave a brief intro to Hunt Club. Let's talk about the sort of founding story. How, how did it come about and, and give me the, the journey uh, in the early days? Yeah. Yeah. So I spent, you know, no time in the recruiting space before starting Hunt Club. You know, I was building New Coast, which you mentioned, and, and really it came out of just a personal observation I had and how recruiting worked and, and just a fascination on a, in a couple different ways. So so it was, I think it was like 2014, maybe early 15. I had a friend that was running a practice at a large, exe large executive search firm. And he kept winning these digitally oriented searches. So think of like a VP of marketing for a series mm -hmm. C company or a CMO for a series C company. And he, he was really running the CPG practice at this firm. So he didn't really understand digital as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was fortunate to have spent, you know, the last five, seven years getting integrated in the whole digital world, um, you know, through a, some different ventures we participated in. And, and so the recruiter would like really look at my LinkedIn and just say, Hey, what do you think about this person? Do you think they're a good fit? Can you introduce me? And, um, and lo and behold, like one summer, I think I made, you know, roughly 10 to 15 introductions for various searches and I placed four or five roles for the guy. And, um, and the funny thing was I kept getting emails back from the people that I would introduce saying, you know, Nick, you know, I actually took that new job that you introduced me to and I'm excited about it. And, and thank you because I wasn't looking. I may have never considered it had it not been for our relationship. And, um, and that like was kind mm -hmm. of like, a wait, what is this industry? And mm -hmm. spent some time, um, you know, with my friend who was running the practice and found out that 
he booked something like a half a million dollars in fees through these introductions. <laughs> and, and, and it just like made me fascinated about the model, how the recruiting world works. So, so I spent some time shadowing some of the bigger firms and we're fortunate that we had some great relationships and kind of just saw that many of them don't really use technology at all. It's still, you know, Excel spreadsheets, LinkedIn, cell phones, and email. Um, and then I also saw that the best recruiters that we got to shadow had these incredible networks that they curated, cultivated, and called on. And, and so I thought to myself, you know, why don't we build a different model? Why don't we put a best-in-class service in place with great, you know, teammates, we call them um, talent partners at Hunt Club, but, um, but build technology to automate the parts of the process you can, augment the parts, parts you can't, and then build this massive expert network of business leaders to help refer your next great hire. And, and that was kind of the, the, the origin story. So, um, you know, got one customer carry and, and convinced them to let us do one search for them for a thousand dollars. And, and, um, I got a couple of my friends, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio to give me their LinkedIn Excel exports and pretended to be the technology by emailing them. Hey, I saw Bobby's in your network, you know, type in yes, if you'd refer them for a search. Um, and ended up placing the role with a referral and, and um, you know, paid an extra network $1,000 for that introduction. And that was kind of our first MVP. So, you know, at that point, have been building the business since. Very cool. So the model today, because, I mean, it's interesting. You, you learned on the uh, executive search community, but you're kind of competing against them now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so is there, is there a model where you see, you know, including them in this or how, how do you see, you know, what, what have you learned that maybe was different than what you originally thought about the, the ecosystem? Yeah, I think what I originally learned that that's quite a bit different than, than what I expected or what I learned that's quite a bit different than what I expected is there, there, there's a big, and, and I had some instincts towards this. So I'd say we're quite competitive with some boutique firms, sure. um, almost complimentary. And we have a large national partnership with, um, you know, one of the, the biggest executive search firms. Um, there, there's a large growing market for technology focused companies um, mm-hmm. that are a totally different skill set that what most firms or recruiting companies, frankly, in the world really understand. Um, and so for us, I think, you know, I didn't really understand how big that gap was. Um, and so I think where we can be a really good complement to some of them is as a partner to, to help them think through some of the searches that they don't have expertise on and, and almost like a referral partnership. Um, and so I think like that's, that's really kind of capturing our opportunity, I think, is as the world's changed and tech companies become large companies and big companies need to transform through digital, um, we think a modern approach is the most effective way to to help service this type of customer. And so we're trying to build kind of uh, a modern search firm. Yeah. It, I mean, to me, it makes total sense because I, I, I agree with you that gap. I'd, I'd love to go one step deeper on that. So what is it about these existing firms that you think is the gap? Because from my perspective, I feel like, you know, I call it laziness that they're, they're literally trying to find the person that looks exactly like maybe who was there before yeah. to replace them or an upgrade. And so they, they don't help companies make that digital leap as an example, right? They're, they're sort of stuck in neutral or maybe even backward looking from my perspective. And sure. so, um, and I look at it personally, like I, I haven't had a resume in 20 years and I'm probably the hardest person for a 
uh, a search professional to place as totally. an example, right? Because uh, like I, I make the, I make their job really hard, and yet you know there are few people in the world that probably have the scope of experiences that I have, right? And and so it, that to me is like the the quintessential example, probably an extreme example of where I feel like they're not very. Yeah. is they're 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 kind of highly paid salespeople as opposed to true problem solvers. So I'm curious what what your perspective is on that. Yeah, and I think that that point that you have, Carrie, is getting even more exposed yeah. as the world's changing, right? Because if you look at most of our customers, if they're recruiting for an executive, like you actually have the perfect background for it. Um, a general athlete that's done quite a bit across functionally, different businesses, seen small, seen big. Um, seen small and grown, seen big and transformed. So I think, you know, I think it's 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 more of a DNA and a and a and a really a type of company problem. So if you look at most of the the recruiting marketplace, so if you were to essentially aggregate, you know, the Corn Ferry, Hydrogen Struggles, Spencer Stewart, um, Egon Zender, you know, they in the executive search market, they're probably close to, you know, fifty to sixty percent of all the revenue, right? Um, and most of their customers are primarily large sure. businesses. Um, and so really, since they focus on that type of demographic of customer, it's harder for them to understand what it's like to be at a Series B company that's mm -hmm. got 13 months of runway that needs to get the right CRO in place. Otherwise, they won't hit their metrics to raise their Series C. And it's, it's almost like an entirely different language to most of them. Sure. Um, and so I think the DNA of who many of these really successful firms customers have been for the last hundred years, um, hasn't given the ability to change as quickly with the time on who are going to be, you know, the Johnson and Johnson's, the Proctor's and the, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the Abbott labs of the next hundred years, which, which may be the, you know, the, I don't know, maybe will be the, the zooms and the, sure. the, you know, mm -hmm. different portfolio companies of Facebook or the, you know, the non-acquired dollar shave clubs of the world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think I think that's a fascinating point. And you know, the funny thing from my perspective is I'm almost too close to it, right? I, I I've done so much recruiting in my career that I I actually feel like I'm really good at this yeah. because it's about problem solving. And you're thinking that you really deeply understand this rapid culture and, and change, and that's not for everyone. And sometimes somebody coming out of a big company is ready for that. Sometimes the body's going to reject that organ really, really quickly, right? And so I think those are the the boots on the ground skills that not enough people in executive search have. So I, I applaud you for for really seeing that because it is. I couldn't agree more that how clear that opportunity is. So that takes me to sort of my next question, which is. What's your view? Obviously, the last nine months has been this fascinating change, and particularly around talent in the digital market. We've seen the you know the bigger companies and a lot of the smaller Series B type ones that that you describe really say, "Hey, we're we're going geographically unbounded." And what what do you think that means now for the world of talent and search? Yeah, it changes everything. Um, because now if you think about it, like the restriction of you have to hire somebody in my market mm -hmm. uh, or the market of the company, wherever the headquarters are, or the role is based, like it's been relatively thrown out the window. Um, I think it's like we did a quick poll on our customers where 
used to, it's like 85% of our customers used to have geographic restrictions. Now, 70% of them are saying hire the best talent anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, it makes it actually quite a bit challenging because in a world where you can kind of pool talent from anywhere, um, That's right. most people are still want to hire based on trust, right? Mm -hmm. So regardless of, and it's certainly for more senior roles as you get to managers, directors, VPs, and C-level, but it's I, not only do I want to hire somebody, I want to hire, understand what they've done from somebody I trust to know they're going to be a great fit for culturally our company or functionally they can, you know, execute on whatever the, the parameters are. Um, so I, I think it like, it makes things really complex for companies now where it's, you know, most recruiting firms are set up to be really functionally deep in something, but still their networks are very much um, based in the geography they live in or the geography they focus on. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it gives us like quite a bit of opportunity because we, we built a great community in Los Angeles, like we have or a great community in Chicago of business leaders and experts and find our carries, you know, there's only one carry, but but find our carries in every market. Um, we can really lean on those types of experts to help us find awesome people um, that, that will fit a customer in Chicago or fit a customer in Minneapolis. And, and I think it gives, you know, it's going to change and expose these larger recruiting firms for the first time. So I think their lack of, of reach and density um, at a national level and, uh, and give an opportunity for, for, I think, a wide range of modern players to really gain market share. So, yeah, it seems like it's just fuel for you because of exactly what you said, that trust network is so key. And I can, I, I can just envision a recruiter who is now looking at whether they're in a company or outside going, all right, now I have the, the world to potentially <laughs> find talent in. I mean, it's, it's almost a like, paradox of choice issue. So how do you get really methodical about determining that the priority of of what is the right order of elements to create the right fit or the right candidates because it's, it's totally. funny you know with that unboundedness from my perspective now if I'm opening my front door if I'm a company and I've got you know instead of a hundred applicants I now have a thousand applicants yeah now I just look at this is is increased noise so yeah, it seems like this is, if, if anything, is just rapid fuel on your fire. Yeah, it's, and it I think so. Like and I think the virtualization of talent, the, the software companies growing through everyone having to rely on, you know, different tools and platforms mm -hmm. now. Um, you know, the tailwinds you're seeing just from, you know, all sorts of home delivery, um, on-demand delivery. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I think it's, it's, I think the statistic McKinsey came out with, like most large companies, digital transformation roadmap is, you know, six years ahead of what they thought now. And, mm. and like, if you actually look at the third quarter, I think there was like something like 36 or $7 billion of venture invested domestically, which is the second highest quarter ever. Um, so I think like a lot of people are believing that these next gen companies are on the rise and mm -hmm. this is an opportunity to start in an environment that's new. Um, and I think for us, you know, if we can, if we bet on a thesis four or five years ago that um, digital will be everything in the future um, and there's a gap between understanding this level of talent, providing this level of talent for these types of companies, our hope is we can capitalize on it. Very cool. So back to this kind of network question, you know, yeah. if, if I ask you, how should I be developing my personal network in this new world? What, what advice would you have for, for someone? 
Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's a couple things. I think it's the best, the best connections in life to me and the most helpful and the most authentic are always rooted in, in authenticity. Um, and I know that's like a pretty generalist comment, but like, you know, I think that the challenge in this environment is like the moments of serendipity and organic connection are not there anymore. Um, so, you know, meeting somebody on the golf course or, mm-hmm. or going to a networking event or, or having a buddy that you had lunch with make an introduction to somebody just because you had a conversation about a problem, right? So I think it's, you have to be way more deliberate about, you know, how you connect with people and mm-hmm. things you involved with. Um, and what, one thing I, I love, and I feel like it's paid um, dividends over the years is, and especially in this environment, is like really setting up some of the more authentic conversations with, um, you know, folks that you can really help, um, whether it's other founders or other startups and, and just, just really adding value, whether it's customer introductions or, or helping problem solve. And then that, you know, we've seen that over years, just pay dividends as far as um, karma come back in tons of different ways. So I think, you know, depending on the stage that you're at in your career, I would be really deliberate about, you know, what you really want to get out of a conversation and really deliberate about, um, you know, how do you create help for others? Because I think in this environment, you know, a 30 minute zoom is, is a way different experience than a casual cup of coffee and a walk. Um, so you have to be a little bit more deliberate on, on what the outcomes and the objectives and how you can help each other is. Good, great advice. Yeah. It's funny. I, when my kids were young, I taught uh, adjunct at a local university here for several years. And Ooh. Uh, one of the modules I taught was on networking and my three rules of networking were give, give, and give some more. And I think your, your point in this environment, I feel like that's, that's really the opportunity is totally. if you can stand out as somebody who's just overly generous with proactivity and help, uh, I think that is uh, a way to really cut through what's happening right now. Totally. So, and and those that haven't gotten to a maturity curve in their career to help as much, right? Like, there's still things that they can Absolutely. do and, and, and it's all about follow through. I think at that point as well, mm-hmm. where it's like those who'd help you like continue to follow through on how it went and what you're doing right. and creates authentic relationships. That's right. Yeah. It's the ones, I mean, I can think of one here. She's really young, just starting her career and it's the ones not that do one thing. And then they kind of wait for, okay, I did this one thing. What are you going to do for me now? It's the ones that had do one and then two and then three and you go, wow, they're, they're different, right? They stand out and then they're memory. And it's, it's, I think it's that memorability is a big part uh, of what, what you can do. So great, great advice. So, I mean, we've got a ton of people out of work right now. We've got big things to solve in the country. As you think about, I'll call it supply demand. I'm, a, I'm kind of an economist at my core. If you think about this imbalance of demand, supply, where are you seeing the biggest gap of high demand, low supply right now that we can sort of tell the market, hey, this is where the opportunity is for people that are looking to reskill, change jobs, change careers. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, and I I love marketplaces too, so I love speaking those terms, so we're good. Um, So I think it's a couple of different places. Some will be quite obvious, others maybe not so much. So obviously across engineering and technology. Building software for different types of businesses, massive supply and balance, um, tons of demand across large, small, big companies, and and tons of activity in the marketplace. Um, a less obvious one actually is in software sales. Um, 
So, so there's not, you know, I think about most of our customers, they, most of our software companies gain such tremendous leverage by having an internal and external sales force. Um, and so that, I think that model has been, you know, certainly proven out with the sales force and hundred others mm-hmm. who really, you know, build the product and lever sales force to grow it. So like there's not enough software experience sellers in the marketplace to service the demand in the marketplace. So I think there's a massive um, rescaling opportunity for those that have sales experience um, in a wide range of different industries mm-hmm. and teaching them the dynamics of software versus, um, versus some of the other things in media or retail or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I see a huge opportunity there. Um, and then I think also there's a huge opportunity across um, you know, various parts of like the marketing stack as well, or the marketing functions. Mm-hmm. So, um, revenue operations, marketing operations, like figuring out how to build the operational machine to help grow an engine for, you know, a B2B company is something that we see, um, a massive supply imbalance as well. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, of course, data science and, and like, you know, you can't find enough data scientists and sure. the uh, universities can't churn them out fast enough to, to help solve some of the problems that we have. So do you see, I mean, great, great examples. I think that's, that's super helpful. Do you see sufficient training and development programs out there in these areas? As I think about your, your discussion, for example, of sales, I feel like in the, the high growth companies that I've been in where sales is a critical part of the, of the revenue uh, or go to market, often you're growing so fast that you're not actually developing people in, yeah. in the right way. And it's a little bit of a churn and burn. And so I'm not sure in the companies is always the best. I mean, that's, that's been a lot of startup skill oh, development over the years is learn by doing, learn by messing things up. But do you see third parties out there really doing a good job? I mean, I don't think the Sandlers of the world, for example, are probably equipping the next generation of software sellers right now. Yeah, a lot of people are attacking the problem in different ways. Um, there's a great group in, um, well, there's actually a couple. There's, there's, there's a couple in Chicago. There's one called Sales Assembly that really tries to educate, and they're, they're getting bigger throughout the Midwest, um, educate the community on like getting early stage sellers trained and equipped. Um, it, you see it happening, um, not at the scale or I think at the focus yet or the level of investment to really solve the problem. Um, and I think another huge challenge is like a lot of software companies are trying to grow so fast for the short period of time with, you know, sure. if, you, if you raise capital, you have 18 months of life. Um, so they can't really focus on investing in their people as much as, as maybe some of these training programs. So I'm hopeful that like someone creates, you know, here's a, here's a startup idea that I've wanted to do for a long time is Lambda school for say, software sales. Yes. Like it can be virtual. There's tons of people that um, are classically trained in sales they can get a great bump in, in pay if they learn how to do it in a different medium and software. So like, I think there's, so I think the, the, the model makes a ton of sense to shift towards that. Um, and I'm hopeful we see more of it because I think it'll solve a great problem. Yeah, I, I'm right here. I think we, you and I should, uh, should, should incubate, it. It, incubate yeah. it, right? Like there, there, I totally agree with you. Uh, and so that, you know, put a pin in that for right now, but I, I want to revisit it and you know, we'll, we'll talk offline. I'm in. So, one of the things I, uh, I'd love to get into on the show is kind of how my, you know, how people operate, like what, you know, their methodology, their values. So in, in the early stages of companies, you have to play so many roles and that is 
you know, something we focus on at the studio here is how do we keep you in your area of genius so you don't have to go figure all these things out because part of the process of figuring that out is really inefficient and can cost time, can cost money. And so what, what's something along the way in Hunt Club that you have had to figure out that you look back and go, man, I really hope I never have to, maybe didn't, didn't want to have to figure it out or hope I never have to again. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's probably been so many that it's hard to pinpoint one, but like, I think like in the early days of our business, like I ran like all of our accounting, all of our accounts, Mm -hmm. payable accounts, receivable, um, you know, all of our like budgeting and planning, like really like was kind of our, our financial nucleus, which is very Mm -hmm. scary. So if our investors are listening, you know, we've got it cleaned up now three or four years into it, but you're um, not the first that's for sure. Yeah. And so it's like the, those types of things. I think the challenge is when you do this for the first time or even the second time, you, you learn a ton about yourself and like truly what is your zone of genius. Um, and then I think maybe your third or fourth or fifth venture, then like you can really optimize from that from the beginning. So I, I want to only do this um, yes. and this will help create enterprise value. And I'm going to go find two partners that can totally take away the rest so that we do this faster. Um, So I think for us, you know, in the early days, like I kind of want to do a little bit of everything so Mm -hmm. that I really learned our business. I wasn't sure what I was great at yet. Um, You know, I had instincts on what I could do and deliver value uniquely, but you know, you're kind of learning a lot about yourself and you're learning Mm -hmm. about what's right for yourself in your company. And then, um, you know, I think now, now five years into this business and then certainly about seven or eight years into the other one, you've got like more clear picture on what, uh, what you should let go of and what you should find someone who's infinitely better than you. So, so I think, um, I'll give you two or three examples. So accounting and finance, like Mm -hmm. I can help on strategic finance. I should never be doing, you know, our accounting systems. Um, you know, I think in a, in a world of, of short and focused and I'm more externally facing for our company, um, you know, someone that's really helping us like check and keep our management systems in process Mm -hmm. and making sure our metrics are up to date and, and really kind of aligning internal functions collaboratively. Like, that's not my zone of genius. Um, and so I think it's, it's great. It's been great learnings across the board on what, um, you know, what, how to do the things you love to do to create the energy to create growth. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the one thing you have developed as a, as a, either an insight about yourself or a skill that you has surprised you that you're like, Hey, this, I'm really good at this. And I didn't realize that. Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I think if I were to think one thing that surprised me, it's actually strategic finance. Um, so like I have a background and like I've created my own major at Vanderbilt and it was in entrepreneurship. And then I also got a communications major too. Um, and then, uh, and then, so like, I don't, I was a consultant for a while, but it was more process stuff. It was less, it was more staff augmentation than it was to like true, like strategy and analysis. And I weirdly found out that I'm not bad at like strategic modeling and like, mm. like building ROI and business case plans and things like that. So based on, you know, being a tennis coach and a, a, like a small a consultant, not focused on that area. And then, an, and then an entrepreneur, um, I think I was, you know, sort of relatively surprised that sure. put a nice model together. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. I mean, those, those are interesting moments, right? Where you go, okay. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's a, that's a great example. So final thing about Hunt Club, uh, what, as you look out over the next year, what has you most excited 
about the company? Yeah, I think probably three things. One, just the macro tailwinds of just mm-hmm. the general market. I think like we built this business in an environment where no one, re- and when we first started, no one really probably felt the need. Everyone understood the need of what we're doing, but it probably wasn't as evident. Um, so I think we've got some pretty good tailwinds there. I think two, you know, we're kind of at that that cool part of a, a business where you've, you've sort of gotten product market fit. You've, you've created and, and been able to fill a great experience for customers. And now it's figuring out how to scale your go to market. So, so we're going to get to invest in that, which, you know, I've been wanting to do for four years. Um, mm-hmm. You look back at like all the plans you built in the early days of the business and you can kind of finally dust them off and say, okay, we're going to try this. Um, so I, so I think those two things have me really excited. And I think also the final thing is I think customers are starving for, you know, great talent that really understands them and understands their business and can really help create enterprise value. And I think, you know, getting to continue to work with, you know, amazing customers, whether it's, you know, the GoPuffs who just, you know, raised 350 million and bought a major retailer or the, you know, the, the, the G2s in Chicago that are continuing to take on the Gartners and the Forsters of the world and them get awesome talent or the, you know, really a wide range of our customers. It's just, it's exciting being a partner to them to help them find um, people building their businesses. So it's, it's energizing. Very cool. Okay, we're going to switch directions a little. I talked uh, in the intro about your tennis background. Uh, you played it at a high level in college. You coached it at a, a high level as well. I, I actually think of it a bit like uh, being an entrepreneur versus kind of coaching and advising entrepreneurs. And you've done a little bit of both of that as well. So how, how has this tennis experience helped you as an entrepreneur? Tennis is a great sport for becoming an entrepreneur because it's a sport where, you know, if you enter a 128 person draw, there's only going to be one winner. Uh, So 127 other people, you know, for lack of a better term, lost or losers. Um, And like you still push forward every week and you still play and, and you still compete. So I think, it's a great metaphor, not just for, I think, business, but just generally for life that like it trained me to, to constantly trying to get better. It trained me to learn how to lose and come back the next day. Um, and it trains you on just general self-improvement, I think self-awareness too. And so, you know, if you can kind of build a framework to constantly look at yourself, understand where you're deficient, um, but be okay with knowing and coming back the next day to work on those things to make yourself better, you know, I think that that's probably like the most important skill set um, for any entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. Is is not taking the losses too hard and being able to come back and work on your game, but, you know, playing, at least getting in the game so you can actually play and take the losses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it was a really good um, preparation for this type of world. And I think, you know, then code, the coaching side of it. So I coached at Northwestern for years, their women's tennis coach. Like that, I think, helped give a little bit of an understanding as the team started to grow and as our company started to grow is less about me playing more about how do I make mm-hmm. others great and mm-hmm. how do I think about supporting them and, and, and helping them as people like hone their craft. And, you know, I, I was as a 22 year old um, working and running and, you know, the team was amazing and it was no, nothing to do with me. I came into it. Like our, mm-hmm. our head coach was um, she had won 13 big 10 championships. Wow in a row we were number one in the country like I was lucky to just get a seat on the, on mm-hmm. the team um so this has nothing to do with me but watching how like 
you know, how she managed the team and built relationships and focused on recruiting and putting people in different positions to make themselves successful. I think there are a lot of comparisons to, to, to how to build a business. So it's been fun. Yeah. I think there's a lot there. I, I, you know, I have not looked back at my early days of playing tennis, uh, but some of those examples that you decided, I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time reflecting on some of the lessons that I probably uh, learned from from my years uh, in that as well. I've lost, uh, you know, I've probably won like in junior tennis before college because there's not really as many tournaments. Mm-hmm. Probably won maybe six or seven tournaments in 10 years of competing. Um, so basically I was a loser at 500 other events. So it's like, um, it just teaches you a lot. Um, sure. So. Yeah, really, really interesting to, to think about. That's That's cool. Talk about Chicago. You've been there for a while. Uh, I feel like I, I was there until uh, through the dot-com crash, and then I uh, moved to the West Coast. So I was there in a different era. I feel like Chicago's found its startup community legs in, in the last several years, at least from where I sit. What, what's really helped that happen from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. So I think um, you look at the last decade, funds are kind of starting to get their stride. And mm-hmm. you know, if, if in 2007 or eight, the, the first funds were seven to $15 million funds, most of them are on like fund three or four now, and they're mm-hmm. you know, 150, $200 million funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like that's helping fuel some capital into the environment. You know, I think um, from just a marketing perspective, like some of the wins around you know, the brain trees and the Groupons going public and the Grubhubs going public and, and, um, and that, you know, those hyper growth moments coming out and, and actually, you know, creating outcomes for other, for people that necessarily didn't start those businesses, but help grow those companies, sure. uh, turn them into angel investors or, or aspiring founders. So it's seeded the talent pool. Um, and I think then the final thing is I think the coasts are starting to really get interested in, in some of the environments that we're building here and, and, um, you know, the frothiness of access to, to a majority of the, the Fortune 500. And, mm-hmm. and I think as, as the tech world is starting to look at ideas that are untapped or not saturated, there's quite a bit in middle America that, that you know, in agriculture or healthcare or, you know, pick a space, manufacturing, construction, um, recycling, right? Like yes. places that traditionally haven't been touched by technologists yet. Um, we, we, ho- we host a lot and house a lot of those businesses here and a lot of those resources and talents. So I think that to me, it's like sort of a perfect moment in time of like funding's getting better. The ideas seem more um, susceptible and, and accessible for external capital. And, um, and we're getting more and more talent that has at least maybe seen parts of the movie or seen the movie once or twice. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you rewind and you say, okay, if I were here, uh, 2005 let's say to that you know in those early days what things would you advise a community that maybe hasn't experienced some of that growth yet hasn't experienced the the capital flowing in hasn't experienced the recycling what would you advise them to be doing now in those early just to sort of build some of that foundation yeah i think it's being really truthful to yourself so like in 2009 or 10, the first business I ever built was a social media app that was photo for photo sharing. Um, and so, you know, my background was in like tennis and consulting and <laughs> sort of like growth hacking and scaling a social media company. Um, so 
I think it's like being really truthful to yourself and your environment and like what is the highest probability of success and, and not necessarily just building the thing unless, and I guess the way I think of entrepreneurship is you either have the idea that you're so obsessed with that even if you have no subject matter expertise, knowledge of the space, mm -hmm. um, history experience or contacts, like the thing's going to pull you along. Um, you're going to win on perseverance and yeah, passion. Exactly. Yep. And like, I would really stress test like a lot of entrepreneurs and the things they're building to make sure that if it fits that great. Um, but if it doesn't fit that, then like what is a business or an idea or concept you could build that you can lever the unfair advantages of a, a geo, a background, a skill set, um, a contact, um, whatever it is and making that like authentic to yourself because then, you know, the, the momentum of the business will carry you to the next stage and the next days mm -hmm. when like maybe natural inception or, or like, perseverance isn't quite there as much. And so you know, I, I would really advise like new ecosystems or new entrepreneurs and newer ecosystems to think about like, don't build a business just because you saw an Instagram post of like, you know, someone exiting a company for $420 million, like build the thing that either like drives you that you're obsessed with, mm -hmm. build, build the thing that you have an unfair advantage with. And then all the other stuff, capital, hiring team, like it'll just naturally come. Um, mm -hmm. I think the last would be like, just like focus on customers. Like I think there's a lot of hoopla around like the obsession of raising capital and sure. owns and like, I just, I don't think, you know, I felt like certainly the anxiety points of like, we haven't raised that much money yet. Like we, why should we do that just to do it? Or mm -hmm. and then I would sort of go back to customers, right? Like when you have an awesome customer that's obsessed with your product or service and they love you and, and you go and try to find more of those, like that's the most authentic way to build something successful. Yeah, for sure. So good. How do you keep yourself innovative and sharp? Yeah, I think it's, it's a hard one at our stage too, where it's, you know, it's my job is still like still very much in the business and then helping think where to take the business next. You know, I think the, the nature and the, the, the luck, you know, frankly, cause it wasn't set up this way is, um, because of the type of business we started, which is a network effect oriented recruiting mm -hmm. company, um, the conversations, whether it's just customer conversations or, um, occasionally candidate conversations, if I'm actually working on a search, uh, like create so many insights and information flow and ideas. And, and then, um, it allows, it allows us to really kind of apply some of those things to our business or, or even think about new ideas for our company. So you know, I think the, the cool thing about this business is um, that access to ideas and information is relatively endless from really inspiring people. Um, that the hard thing sometimes is then prioritizing what we should actually do. Sure. Yeah, it's almost you could let the imagination go and say, we, we really almost end up being a traffic cop of this, this person who they're in a job, they're not happy in this job. Do they want another job or do they really need to go start something? Yeah. There's, yeah. There's, yeah, there's some really interesting opportunities that that could uh, uncover through those conversations so totally. very very cool you're in a, you're in a good spot uh, you can see why some venture funds set up talent platforms and uh, other oh. environments i mean i think you and i totally probably align that uh, as i say you know typically if i have the choice best team i can put on the court on the field whatever uh, i'm going to opt for that all day yeah, all day. it makes all the difference, right? Without a great team, and we're lucky to have one at Hunt Club, but like, without a great team, it's just, it's not, it doesn't, it's not fun, it's hard, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 
with the right team, it's it's still hard. Um, sure. It's always hard. It's just, it's just way more fun, and That's right. and you can actually get to some new levels and unlock new things. Amazing. We're coming up on time. Last question: When yeah. you think of an entrepreneur operating a company like you're doing today. Uh, what's the one thing I think I know what you're going to say, but what's the one thing that you think they should most focus on? I think knowing their strengths and weaknesses mm. and building around that, I think is the most important thing. And then I think also like being really honest on the stage of the business and when to sequence that appropriately, right? Like, mm -hmm. because I've seen people hire way too ahead of the curve on certain yes. things um, and just get the profile person wrong. And that can really hurt a company. I've seen people do it way too late and some of the, the, the early stage or founding DNA of the company doesn't really give the ability to scale. So I think mm -hmm. it's the more that someone can pattern match what they're great at and what they need some help with um, against like the stage of their business in an authentic way, I think the higher probability for success. Good stuff. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great conversation as I expected it would. Uh, amazing perspective and frankly wisdom for uh, as early in your career as you are and I think that serves you well in your your journey now as CEO and founder and, and entrepreneur uh, and I see it in the the team around you that I know uh, thinks so highly of you so congratulations on all you've done so far I'm super excited for what you're building and uh, look forward to being a part of it with you. So uh, thanks for really sharing how you operate with me no, today. Thank you, Kara. I really appreciate the conversation as always. And lucky to be on it. And you're hearing, I live across the church. So <laughs> you get, get the bells every hour reminding me to stay focused. That's right. We ended just on time. Well, thanks. Yeah, we'll go. talk soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.